This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Darshan Narvaez is a professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame. There she directs the Evolved Developmental Morality Lab, where her program of research concerns how the provision of physical, emotional, and social resources early in life bear upon the development of ethical behavior. In this episode, we discuss her recent book, Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing, edited along with Four Arrows, Eugene Halton, Brian Collier, and George Enderly. The conversation focuses on indigenous ethical traditions and how those traditions conceptualize humanity's relationship with and responsibilities to the natural world. All right. Hi, everybody. I am back here with Darsha Narvaez again, and I'm excited to have you back, Darsha. Um, it's kind of by popular request because so many people reached out to me and said that they absolutely loved our conversation the first time and wanted to hear more from you. And also because I was very curious about your work with indigenous wisdom. Um, that's like an area that doesn't seem to be written on much. And so it's exciting to be able to talk to somebody who has done thinking about this, um, and anyway, so today we're going to be discussing Darsha's work on um, uh, her book, Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing. Um, so first, I want to begin with hearing about how you became interested in Indigenous wisdom. Well, I, I uh, wrote my book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, when I was writing it, I had a book proposal, and the book didn't want to be kept in the cage of that proposal. And it had a mind of its own, as creative <laughs> writers find with their books. And so I'm integrating all this different information, and I was led to realize that, wow, what we're really missing right now, and you can see it from the planetary destruction that's underway, is indigenous wisdom, the wisdom that our cousins our ancestors had uh, in living uh, cooperatively in partnership with the earth mm -hmm. and so in the book I end up contrasting different kinds of wisdom uh, I called it then primal wisdom but that's indigenous wisdom and I contrasted it with the traditional wisdom of the west which is a Christian kind of uh, mm -hmm. wisdom and realized that there are a lot of parallels but the key differences between traditional um, wisdom and uh, indigenous wisdom is the fact that two things really. One is the traditional wisdom was afraid of uh, humanity's animal nature and indigenous wisdom was very much about embracing your animal nature and uh, growing it well and honoring it. And then the second one was uh, cooperation is not only with human beings as in traditional wisdom but with a natural world so in in indigenous wisdom so it's a whole different mindscape worldscape that our ancestors who live sustainably have compared to what we have now and so my book was about how we've narrowed down our humanity in a way 
that's led us to so many crises that we have now. Wow, that's fascinating. And that was that was which book again? That's the neurobiology and the development of human morality, okay. evolution, culture, and wisdom. Uh, it it won a couple of book awards, which was really oh, nice. amazing. What William James Book Award from the APA and the Expanded Reason Award, uh, which was funded by the Vatican, actually. So, wow, very neat. yeah. So that that uh, it's been a journey in the last um, number of years, just a few years, where I've realized now that indigenous wisdom is where we have to get back to, and that's our our full human nature is there. Fascinating. So can you just tell me a bit more? I want to hash more into those two key differences. Um, Because as I was reading your book, um, those the it really sunk in with me that one of the fundamental differences is how how people construe the relationship between humanity and and the cosmos. Um, So can you just tell me more about that? Like, how does an indigenous wisdom kind of conceptualize that relationship between humanity and the cosmos? Well, this is, uh, it's actually quite complicated in a way. Uh, for our understanding, it's, it's um, a sense of partnership that the, the natural world is a world full of persons, some of which are human. And the sense of sentience in everything, even rocks, rivers, mountains, winds. And I think uh, my work on embodied morality, which is another book, also emerged from that 2014 neurobiology book that we are really shaped by our early experiences, our perceptions, the way we, what we attend to, our ability to attend, our ability to the kinds of schemas we bring to situations, all that is is grounded in those early years uh, dependent on experience. So if we're in the Western world, we, we put babies into dead spaces, walls, we put them on in cribs and carriers and playpens, all dead things, right? Our ancestry though, is to be out in the natural world and interacting with living things, plants, animals, insects, winds, <laughs> all this anima- animated living nature. And so our way of raising children shapes them to be ready for deadness, really, and, and not even, so they don't grow those perceptions, what I call in my 2014 book, receptive intelligence. Mm. And so we don't know how to pick it up. We don't pick up the livingness yeah. of the uh, of the entities around us and part of it is we've domesticated them down into out of their wildness the animals and the plants that we keep around us so that's part of the problem too so it's a, a sense of livingness of the whole in the complexity and the dynamism of, of life that uh, it's not a mind separated from body or a heart from thinking uh, feeling from thinking no it's all integrated that's the natural way of being a human being you can see all over the world in in the traditional societies this sense that feeling really has to come from or thinking has to come from the heart feeling from the mind i mean it's all integrated and we in the west have split everything up and fragmented and and think everything's amoral and not alive 
Yeah, I thought that that was helpful. Um, helpful for me to understand that, okay, there's, there's sort of these separate conceptualizations of nature. One as nature is sort of this um, amoral kind of dead thing that ought to be conquered for human purposes and another worldview that sees the cosmos as sacred and divine and something that isn't to be conquered. That's right. It's partnership. It's not domination. So yeah. Rianne Eisler has been writing about that for decades. And she and uh, Douglas Fry have a new book out called Nurturing Our Humanity. And Douglas Fry is an anthropologist. And so they do an integration, a marvelous book uh, just came out that I would encourage people to look, at, look up. But they, they contrast those two systems and then show how it's just a recent rare phenomenon to have these dominator cultures. But we, uh, and there's evidence that the cultures that have been dominated cultures can move to partnership, back to partnership. Yeah. And I think another thing that I was struck by that I'd love to hear more on with this partnership piece is that um, a lot of this, a lot of your book relates to um, sustainability and um, climate change and things like this. And one of the things I was I was struck by was this idea that partnership with nature does not mean um, trying to leave it perfectly untouched. It doesn't mean that nature is just left alone, hands off altogether. Um, and I wonder if you could say more about that because I found that interesting. It's something that I tend to think of like green movement as just leave no trace. Right. So this is, uh, again, the indigenous perspective. You can see it among Native American uh, philosophers and scientists that when they talk about relating to the natural world, it's as a partner again. Uh, and Robin Wall Kimmerer, I think her book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, is really marvelous and she's a great writer. And she talks about um, trying to integrate Western science with indigenous science and talks about a, uh, an experiment one of her students did where they had three beds of sweetgrass and one they treated like uh, the indigenous, one they treated like the Western way and one they left alone. The one that was treated like the Western way is to just grab what you wanted as you wanted it and pull willy nilly. The indigenous way of treating the bed of sweetgrass was to ask the plant for permission. May I take you? May I have some of you? And if the plant resisted, that was a no, and you went on to a different plant. And the, the uh, bed that thrived was the indigenously uh, treated bed of sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. So that's the perspective, is that if you leave things alone, they're not going to thrive. It's a partnership again. Just like with a baby, you leave a baby alone, you think, oh, they need to be the romantic view. You leave them alone and the, their own spirit will grow uh, on their own. No, they need that interaction. They need to be called forth. They need to be respected and feel that you care for them. Uh, and that's the way the natural world is too in this view. 
Yeah, I also want to dive into the piece you had mentioned about being afraid of animalistic nature versus embracing it, um, especially because as you're speaking, it sounds kind of ironic, right? Like it, it sounds like if traditionally, if Western cultures traditionally are are afraid of animalistic nature, the way that you characterize it often makes them sound more animalistic. Do you think that that's unfair? Uh, I'm I'm unclear on what you mean. Well, just that um, taking what you want when you want it, like the sweet grass example, that sounds more animalistic in the ways that I tend to think of religions characterizing being animalistic than being in this cooperation and partnership. And yes. so I think it's yes. interesting that it kind of seems like that backfires in a way to be afraid of that nature. Yeah. So what, what I argue in the 2014 neurobiology book is that the reason I speculate, the reason that the Western wisdom traditions are so afraid of their animal nature is because they've undermined baby development for so long that they think uh, babies are just these wild animals. Well, that's because you left them alone to cry, for heaven's sakes. Or you, you know, denied them breast milk when they were asking for it. Or they, they didn't get the evolved nest. Uh, and babies are different from kids. They need to have their needs met right away uh, because their, their brain is growing, what, thousands of synapses a second. And when you deny it their needs, you are then causing stress, which uh, repeated uh, will be toxic and melt things that are supposed to be growing or not grow. And so I think that's what's happened is the West, with its undermining of baby development in particular and child development generally, have then created these people that are really dysregulated uh, because they forgot what babies need and think it's better to deny them and somehow coerce them into being something else. Yeah. Uh, and so then they end up rationalizing it and making up all these theories about it. Yeah. So it sounds like, it sounds like you're saying that it's potentially a product of just a vicious cycle with a species atypical nest. That's right. And we're blinded by our present experience. We, it's the tyranny of, of the present that we assume it's normal and that we're kind of, because of the, the cultural metaphors that are deeply rooted in our subconscious of progress, you know, and humans are better than everything else and humans should be dominating. And uh, all that kind of, those metaphors are then um, keep us thinking, well, this is progress. There's no other way it could be. Right. And um, all sorts of really romantic ideas about and forgetting, forgetting our past. It's, um, you know, I found after I wrote my book, my 2014 book, I found Paul Shepard, his work. Mm -hmm. And he has a book, which I also recommend, Coming Home to the Pleistocene. Mm -hmm. And he's, he wrote for decades about the importance of paying attention to our past, which is 99% of our history was outside of of civilization, and um, he, uh, oh, he has just marvelous, marvelous writing. If I'd read his stuff, I wouldn't have needed to write my book, <laughs> probably, although I relate it more to, directly to morality. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. So why, like, I know this is like a, a, a complicated question. I don't know how much thinking you've done on this, but do you have any ideas as to why Western ethics started to move away from indigenous wisdom? Well, there are, uh, the, um, Paul Shepard talks about this, 
So he, he goes back in time and, and starts with the Hebrews who were the first to move away from the earth and, and instigated a historical view of linear progress. They wanted to be uh, detached from place and kind of split nature and personalities, nature and humans. Uh, and they then adopted a God that's above the earth, right? Separate from the earth instead of uh, gods of nature and cyclical kind of ways of being, the mythic mind, all sorts of things. So it's rather complicated, but I think it started back then. And for me, uh, he, he doesn't particularly say this, but other people have said it, that once people started to move away from being outside and started domesticating animals and cultivating plants, they start to lose their partnership orientation. Hmm. And Nave and Bird David, uh, Nurit Bird David is an anthropologist, have written about the Nayaka in India who were hunter-gatherers when they first studied them. And then over the decades, uh, when the Westerners and the Western ways of being, civilization's way of being came in and pushed them into cultivating plants and domesticating animals, they moved away from this partnership orientation of treating all these other beings as persons to treating the ones they were cultivating as objects. Mm -hmm. So there's something about experience that really matters back to embodied morality. So if you've never had that experience of being a partner with whoever it is, a tree, a plant, an animal, a person, you're not going to build that into your worldview. Yeah. Worldview, I think, is really established in those first three years. Uh, it's really hard to shift. Yeah. So now fast forwarding, I, another section of the book that I thought was really interesting um, were the parts where you talked about kind of the collision of Native Americans with their wisdom interacting with Spaniards for the first time. And I just thought that was really fascinating. And so I want to make space for that on this podcast to just talk a bit about how these two people groups interpreted one another and um, made sense of their ethics. Yeah, well, Frederick Turner and... Um... Um, Kirkpatrick Sale, S-A-L-E, have written books that look at this, uh, the encounters between the Europeans and the Native Americans, and how the Europeans came with this already cultivated uh, suspicion of nature and wanting domination, essentially, and there's oh, a lot of other factors, but they come in and they don't see the paradise before them. I mean, when they came, you could smell blossoms miles off the coasts of North America. You could hear the birds. There were millions, billions of birds that just would fly. You could just pluck one out of the air, even, uh, according to the reports. And uh, it was, but what happened is when the English came, for example, they just uh, went through and cut down all these forests, these trees that were as wide as a village church. Uh, with no sense of any sacredness. It's just uh, things to use that we can use. And, and it, they would just cut down huge trees to burn them, get them out of the way. It's just uh, so alien to the natives who had been there living with these, in partnership with these other entities. So um, the encounters, there's a number of quotes that people have uh, made of uh, Native Americans that they look in the eyes of these 
conquistadores uh, or um, these explorers, they would just come down and mow, come and mow things down uh, with willy-nilly and move on. Yeah. Uh, and they, they would look in their eyes and they, they say they were soulless. Mm-hmm. And Jack Forbes has this book, um, forgetting the title at the moment, but he talks about wetico, which is a Native American term for uh, cannibalism of other people's life, of other pe- other living things. And uh, wetico then is this virus that's very infectious and it's gold fever, essentially. And that's what uh, you could see in many of the Europeans that came over uh, just wanting to take, take, take. Yeah. And what about from the other perspective? I mean, how did how did Europeans interpret Native American lifestyles and practices? Yeah, they uh, they thought that the English or would want to have a you know contract or a treaty and try to find a leader uh, to sign this paper, which of course the the other people couldn't read, but. Uh, and they would look for a leader, but in a small band hunter gather and other kinds of societies with like that, they're leaderless. There's no leader. <laughs> you live cooperatively and, you know, egalitarian and a leader might come up for a day for something from some activity, but there's no regular leader. So they were very frustrated that uh, they couldn't get anything done. And, and then they would have somebody sign something with an X or whatever. And then that would, they would just assume that's the leader. They just took it that way and took everything. Um, but the uh, English also thought they were uh, Indian, the so-called Indian givers. So there's one report where an explorer comes with his backpack or whatever he's carrying, <clears throat> and the natives take it, and then they all take everything is spread around all the all the his his things that were in the bag. And anthropologists report this around the world too, uh, that they come with their suitcase or their bag of clothes, and then. Uh, immediately people just take it all and then the, the their pink dress is being worn by this woman one day and then another woman another day because it's all about sharing <laughs> everything is shared and nobody has possessions and that's so contrary to the property orientation of the western world in the last few hundred years that's interesting so i i recently recorded a podcast with um oliver scott curry and he was saying that like one of the big um one of the big pieces that seems to be missing from like moral foundations theory and some of these these other theories of morality is that it seems to be fairly universal that um like prior prior basically that priority dictates um Ownership in some way, ownership might be a little bit too strong, but this idea that if you had something first that you have more rights to it, and he was saying that was kind of evolutionarily just like found universally. So would you disagree with that? Or maybe there's some nuance in there? Well, I'm trying to think of all the accounts I've read. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, if I think of the small band hunter gathers, they and other societies where giving is always constant. Yeah, uh, there is no priority, and and in some of these uh, more subtle societies, you have to give things away, or something's wrong with you. So you can keep yeah. something for a while, 
but then you have to give it away. And, and so the anthropologists are advised, you know, well, you got that from blah, blah, blah. You should be giving it away now. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. The rules are, I don't think you can call it so black and white like that. I, I would be more inclined to say that it's normal to be sharing everything. I mean, animals will come in and scavenge yeah. dead bodies and that's just normal. The flies come in, the other animals, they all, it's all about us. We all share and everyone, you know, you give and take and give and take and give and take. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think even the idea of, of turn taking might itself play into that, right? Because if you're taking turns, it implies that somebody had priority. So if they're passing around the pink dress from one day to the next day, I suppose in a way that could be getting at that already. Well, I think you have to be careful. The priority thing assumes a linear view of history or mm -hmm. of, of experience, but that's not what most of the world, how things are perceived. It's dynamic inter and everything's interplayed and lots of non-manifest things are happening that, you know, shaman can tune into and maybe you and you're in a trance. And I mean, it's just so, it's so much more complicated than just the simple materialistic linear way of looking at things that we have. Yeah. Interesting. Can you say more on that? Cause I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Well, <clears throat> let's see. I, I don't know if I have enough um, to say it very well in my own words. So uh, just because I'm still trying to translate all this for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm learning and you know That's how it does. Totally it takes <laughs> a little while to, you know, make it put into my own words. Yeah. So, um, no problem. And it's a pretty abstract question anyway, but I think no, that but I do have a quote. Okay. This is from the book, uh, coming home to the Pleistocene by Paul Shepard. He quotes John Cobb Jr., a theologian talks about the mythic mind. The mythic mind does not re re recognize the separateness of subject and object, but instead sees a flow of subjective and objective contributions bound together, where there's no clear consciousness of subject as subject or of object as object. Yeah. So that, and, and that was another thing that I do feel like I was struck by was just, it, it seems like this, it seems like indigenous wisdom is very it comes from a very relational ontology yes. and it makes it difficult for, for people like me who have been so trained in, in sort of this abstractionist mindset, it becomes difficult to keep that in mind as I'm learning about and reading about um, yeah. this, this tradition. This and you know, you know, that abstracting, and the focus on thinking has been criticized all over the world of the West. Mm -hmm. People come in and they just think with their heads and they, and you know, people in Bali, for example, it's like you, you heart feel, you heart think, and uh, the heart mind is key. And if you're, you're not a well raised person, unless you have a good heart mind that's sensitive and intuitive and, uh, pays attention to all sorts of complexities and interactive uh, aspects of a situation. And yet the West comes in with one idea, one, you know, abstracted theory. Uh, and uh, William Easterly in his book, White Man's Burden and the Tyranny of Ex Experts, both books, uh, discusses how so much damage has been done by that kind of thinking. 
and such a waste of billions of dollars around the world because mm -hmm. the West comes in and thinks it knows because it sat in its office and thought about it. <laughs> it comes in with an answer, right? And then messes everything up, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I also wanted to go back to like part of, so I think, I think one of the things that continues to surprise me is that there is a very dismissive attitude toward um, indigenous wisdom. Like even even today, even as people are trying to be uh, a bit a bit more conscious of of like judging other cultures and being too ethnocentric, but I still think that there's a lot of dismissiveness toward indigenous societies and ethics as just like less educated or something. Um, and there was in your book, here it is. I'm going to quote you quoting someone here. Um, what page? It's on page 93. Uh -huh. And it's in your chapter about becoming and being human. And it says... A philanthropist friend of the Indians said of the native in the 19th century, we need to awaken in him wants. In his dull savagery, he must be touched by the wings of the divine angel of discontent. Discontent with the teepee and the starving nations of the Indian camp in winter is needed to get the Indian out of the blanket and into trousers and trousers with a pocket in them and with a pocket that aches to be filled with dollars. And that quote just, it's shocking. I mean, that's, it shocks me. I think it's disturbing. And at the same time, I'm kind of questioning whether a whole lot has changed. You mean since the environmental movement? Yeah, just in general, I, I still feel like there's sort of this dismissive, dismissive kind of hand waving over talking about, about indigenous societies and ethics in general, like, and as testament to that, that there's so little scholarship that's been done on it, but there's a ton of scholarship that's been done on Eastern ethics and ethics that emerged out of the Enlightenment era in Europe and things. Right. Well, I, um, yeah, I think it's the, again, the root metaphors are, are strangling us here. Um, the root metaphors of progress, individualism, separation, superiority to nature, uh, the only way to know something is with an experiment, positivism. Uh, there's so many of those root metaphors that we can't actually conceive of any other way to be. And so, and, and part of it is we don't have the capacities because we haven't developed those capacities, the receptive intelligence, the awareness that everything's alive <laughs> around us. Mm. People just don't feel it, right? In part because those things were pruned away because they were not developed when they, when they were in their early years or they were suppressed over and over in childhood uh, that they ended up dismissing them. Yeah. But I, I try to remind my students now to help them reconnect to nature. And that's part of their assignment. I give them a bunch of ideas for how to do that. And then they are to journal and do it all semester. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's uh, using things like a, a sit spot, a place you go back to over and over and watch the changes. And you, because you're a regular presence there, the animals uh, get used to you and so they'll show up. Uh, and so 
uh, sit spot, wandering, um, paying attention to your senses, sensory expansion. I have students who, you know, they took a class outside one time in the spring and I asked them to close their eyes and pay attention to what they heard. And one of them said, gee, I never knew we had birds on campus. <laughs> you know, I mean, they've been there all year, <laughs> but they're walking around, you know, not paying attention or they've got earbuds or something. So we've, we've pushed people on purpose in a way away from nature because we got so scared of it because we didn't understand it anymore. And then we blame nature. <laughs> it's scary. It's dangerous because we yeah. don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to interact in a, in a respectful way. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like that was already starting to get at some practical kind of tips for how to rediscover and apply our human needs. Um, what else do you think would be helpful on a personal level for rediscovering um, and implementing Indigenous wisdom? Well, one of the the biggest things I think is develop a sense of humility towards nature. Mm. And we really have, and, and gratitude actually, and Native Americans start all their meetings with gratitude towards the natural world, the four directions, the earth, mother earth, the sky, the sun. And uh, they humble themselves before natural law, natural laws of the earth and try to fit in rather than trying to, alter them or deny them <laughs> yeah and uh the humility then is part of that <clears throat> i think the humility that parents need towards their babies built in needs and their built in uh signals but again they have they need practice now we've taught people not to pay attention to each other very much uh, very well and so parents need to learn to be responsive and the book that we just read in class which really helps is brain-based parenting and they talk about <clears throat> their pace model that parents need to be playful, accepting, curious, and empathic. Is uh, Curious is a funny word. I think delighting in would be better, but they wanted to have a nice acronym, PACE. Uh, and so that, so that we, we worked with kindergartners uh, this semester too, trying to get the, the, my students to learn to be responsive after they've read all how important the nest, the evolved nest is, uh, what it develops in children and how children are so shapeable in those first six years. Mm -hmm. Then to come and interact with children, we learned folk song games. And that's, uh, you know, like Farmer in the Dells is one that everyone knows. We didn't do that one. We did other more fun ones. Um, but we played then with the kindergartners because when you uh, want to regrow your sensitivities and your responsiveness, your empathy, you need to do something in the moment that requires you to be responsive and folk song games do that and so your right hemisphere grows when you have that kind of experience that's what our neuroscientists tell us so you can <clears throat> do that with art music dance and we were doing it with uh, folk song games very cool and um so what about like on a broader level um and kind of pulling in this sustainability piece what do you think are the practical kind of ways forward for healing the planet and society broadly? Well, I think people have to face what civilization really is. And I've been reading Urban Scout. He wrote a book, Rewild or Die. And he 
gives the definition of um, civilization from a uh, dictionary perspective, and then he gives his own definition. So here's the dictionary. What does the dictionary say civilization is? An advanced state of intellectual, cultural, material development marked by progress in the arts and sciences, the excessive use of record keeping, including writing, and the appearance of complex political and social institutions. Then we all say, yeah, that sounds right. This is his definition, <clears throat> Urban Scout. A catastrophe created when a human culture practices full-time agriculture, causing their populations to spiral into a cycle of exponential growth, social hierarchy, soil depletion, and gen genocidal expansion that leads to an eventual collapse of ecosystems, biological diversity, and culture. And we see that's happening, right? Everything, biocultural diversity everywhere disappearing. Uh, oceans are so warm now and acidic, there's hardly any oxygen left and hardly any life left in them. All these tipping points are happening right now and people talk about near-term human extinction. So it's really, really serious. And those people who look at all the data are saying we have maybe five years at the most left for our species, which is really a horrible shock. Talk, told my students that yesterday on our last class. And, they, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm telling you this. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. And they said, well, I'm glad you told us. <laughs> I'd rather know. Yeah. You know, it's like a cancer diagnosis. Do you want to know or not? Yeah, I want to know so I can prepare myself, you know, and do the things I really love to do. And so that's the recommendation. Do the things you love to do in terms of relationships and honor uh, the, the relationships you have and nurture an awareness and connection to all the natural entities in, around you. Yeah. Um. And going back to those two definitions of civilization, I mean, do you think that there's any merit to the first definition? It seems to me like they both have, they're both, they both have elements that seem accurate to me. Right. <clears throat> yeah. It's just uh, that people tend to focus on the first one and ignore the second one. And then we have this crisis, these crises now. Yeah. Um, so what, what are sort of your next steps? I know you said that this is actually a new area of research for you. What are your future directions in continuing your work on, on indigenous wisdom? Well, I'd like to, um, do at least a article, if not a book on indigenous ethics. I think that's, I've got, I've gathered a whole bunch of books and resources for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I'd like to spend time doing that. Uh, and then uh, Evolve Nest um, to do things for the wider public to make them aware of these things. And happily, the federal government is passing uh, paid family leave 12 weeks for federal workers. Wow. Uh, in the next few days, I think it'll be signed. So that's good news. Hopefully that'll help 12 weeks at least something uh, for babies, although that's not enough for long-term breastfeeding. So um, anyway, so it's pointing to the things we can do now and pointing to what our ideal would be so people have something in mind and giving them a sense of the baseline of where we come from as a species, what we need to flourish, what we need and to um, 
be compassionately moral instead of self-protectionately moral, which is what our president pushes for, you know, us, us against them. and mm. uh, puts us in the wrong mindset, at least in terms of um, being cooperatively compassionate. Yeah. And do you think, like, what do you think are some of the biggest roadblocks to people taking this seriously, this line of work seriously? Uh, you mean indigenous ethics? Yeah, indigenous <laughs> ethics and also just sustainability behaviors as it relates to indigenous ethics. Well, I think um, we've had to, because we didn't have the evolved nest, most of us in our early life or even now, I think the nest lasts throughout our lives. We all need lots of social support and feel like people are responsive to us and we feel like we have a contribution to make, that we're connected and we belong. We all need that throughout life, but especially in early life when our brain is being shaped, I think a lot of us didn't get what we needed, and so we lock down. We put ourselves, <clears throat> we lock up our hearts, we lock down ourselves and suppress ourselves, and so, and then we, we uh, glom on to whatever um, identity seems right at the time when we need it. And then we stick to that and we don't think very well, we don't feel much and we don't um, act then well, we act for self mostly or for my group. And so we have to get people healing from that. Um, those are just natural responses to being undercared for. And it's pretty widespread now and that makes it really hard to think very well, feel, uh, and to be uh, a creature of the earth. And so lots of healing has to happen. And some people say everyone should meditate and get in touch with the one, the oneness of everything. Uh, it takes a lot of practice to do that. And uh, I think other ways of inspiring people to, to uh, soften their hearts towards every, every entity would be helpful. Um, so there's some there's so much to do yeah. <laughs> i'm sure all the listeners if there are any listeners uh will have a way that they can help us move in a direction that's more of a partnership orientation than a domination of others and of ourselves even yeah and also like the domination stuff this is also backtracking a bit but i was also fascinated by some of the implications in your book about how economics and politics kind of comes into play in um, bolstering these ethical traditions. Um, have you done more any more thinking about about economics and politics as it relates to indigenous wisdom since writing the book? Um, what were you referring to or what were you thinking? So, like there was one chapter by... Barbara Alice Mann about yes. the gift economy of woodland matriarchies. And so that that chapter got me thinking um, about it more. And also just in general, the, the contrast between like it makes sense that that Native Americans would see would see these Spaniards coming in, Europeans coming in and cutting everything down the way that they did because at the time mercantilism was was at its heyday and and in a way these colonists were sent out to go 
yeah, like find, find physical capital that could be sent back to the empire. And so I'm just, it, it's interesting to me to also think about how economics and politics are at play in, in shaping these ethical traditions. Yeah. Um, and I've been reading about com the commons and it was only in the last uh, thousand years or so that the, the public lands became privatized, first starting in England and then spreading across Europe, which displaced right. all sorts of people, right? It made first uh, homelessness, uh, starvation, all the things we see today that are just, we think is normal. That started when the aristocracy decided that they wanted to control everything. And so you couldn't, could no longer go to the forest and pick mushrooms or strawberries or hunt an animal when you were hungry. Yeah. Uh, and you got thrown in, in jail instead and, or uh, in servitude or something. And uh, just that, that Carl Polanyi, K-A-R, uh, Carl Polanyi um, wrote about this. He called it the great transformation. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the roots of our economics today. Uh, and it was all, all these things happened sort of uh, at a similar time point where the doctrine of discovery was put together uh, by uh, uh, the religious, the, the Rome uh, Vatican, and that wherever a Christian landed and planted their flag, they could claim it for their own, <clears throat> uh, for the empire. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that that kind of, uh, and then private property, John Locke argued that it was really important to have private property. Other people did too, and came up with uh, theorizing about that. And it's all happening at once where all of a sudden we switched our economy. It used to be gift economies everywhere. Yeah. And even before capitalism was spread all over the place, the gift economies would be the, the way a community uh, interacted so that you knew you'd lend something to somebody and then they'd lend you something and you had all these ways of being connected through lending and borrowing. And, uh, and even in our small band hunter-gatherer uh, societies, uh, uh, quite a number, a couple dozen anthropologists noted that, uh, I can't remember which societies they looked at, but this is in science, uh, journal a few years ago, <clears throat> where they found that even a thousand miles away, these people had indebtedness uh, relationships. And so if they got into a famine over here, they could go walk that thousand miles to get help from those others who had helped, they had helped before or something. And so our whole, the way nature works is a gift economy. People, um, some animals take, others, uh, uh, you know, their waste becomes food for another animal and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Another, I, it's interesting too, to even think about like the, the phrase tragedy of the commons. That was another thing that popped up for me was just thinking that's so interesting that there, there, there is no such tragedy if you're operating out of an indigenous framework. That's right. So that's just uh, from the um, capitalistic linear way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Well, all right. So, any any last uh, words of wisdom or hope for us as we move forward as researchers? Well, I think my because I'm retiring uh, at the end of the year on purpose. Yay! Uh, <laughs> Congrats! Um, <laughs> thank you. I can't wait. Uh, in part, it's because I've gotten discouraged with um, psychology, at least my exposure to it because it is so 
narrow and it's so unable to deal with um, the environment, sustainability, indigenous wisdom, because mm -hmm. it's got this positivistic streak, right? You've got to have an experiment and to get published, you've got to do it this way or that way. And so you leave out most, most of human experience and most of what reality is about is left out of science, psychological science, and I just can't take it anymore. Yeah. Could you tell me more about that, what you mean by that? Because I know that there were also chapters about <laughs> conducting science as well. In that yeah. Book. So Greg Cajete, C-A-J-E-T-E, -E, wrote a book, uh, I think it's 2000, called Native Science. And I've used it in class. It's so wonderful because it talks about how uh, Native Science, Indigenous Science, is about coming to know the earth and living well with it, you know, with a natural world. Mm -hmm. And it's not a domination or control or, you know, prediction, those kinds of things that are so important in Western science is just not there. And um, he has a chapter in this book too on plants and how important they are. I think Western science has now shown us that indigenous science is right in terms of, you know, plants feel things, they, they have agency, you've got all this science coming out on plants now, fish too, you know, and um, trees are, uh, mother trees help the whole forest and even trees that are different species, their roots are giving them food and they, all those kinds of interactive things happening. Uh, that now biological science is at least showing us. And physics is, of course, telling us about quantum theory and everything's energy and interacting constantly. Anyway, this is all native science already. They just didn't have the Western lingo for it, but they had a sense of it all and they acted on it. So it's behaving in a way that's honoring all the life around us. And I think that's the, um, the important um, part of indigenous science. I forgot your question now. Oh, I was asking. <laughs> about, no, no, I, it was great. I was asking about um, just science from a, from an indigenous perspective. And again, like it sounds like a lot of it centers around this relational ontology um, and not so much experimental control and, and things like this, but actually more naturalistic kind of science. And observation. So then you, you have uh, generations of observation of a landscape and you know what, those, what helps those plants thrive or not or what the signals of the particular winds in that area mean. Mm -hmm. Everything's disrupted now, of course, with climate emergency. But, um, but you learn and you, you learn mostly from observation and being listening and attending. And I think that's part of what those capacities are some that we've lost or underdeveloped. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Darsha. Appreciate your time again and talking oh, about this. And I know you're going to make a lot of people very happy because, like I said, you're you have been requested back by multiple people. So uh, thanks so much from me and them as well. Oh, thanks so much for having me again. listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.